Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Travis Fisher and Rachel Wilfong. Now, as has become tradition, I want to remind everyone about the Power Power Hour's email. I can't even say Power Hour, right? And that's why I depend on my colleague, Travis Fisher, to give us the email address because I almost assuredly get that wrong. Yeah, I'm, I'm here for you, Jack. You can tag me in at any point. Thepowerhour at heritage.org is the email address. Please email us. So give us your input. We've been getting a lot of good input. People um, seem to have liked the cryptocurrency um, episode. They want more of that. I don't know if we can give them more of that. There's only one crypto energy angle that I'm aware of, but maybe we can uh, find another way to, to hit the crypto stuff. We certainly have enough folks here to to do that and i think we well have it's a, up to the president right we we yes. were reacting to really bad policy from the white house so we'll just wait and see what the white house does it's worse than what they already proposed in the perfect world we won't ever have to address that again in fact i would argue that for all of our jobs in a perfect world we would all be fired and have to learn to code because we wouldn't need people like us to look at energy and environment policy the government would get out of the way and let energy companies who know how to produce energy to produce it that's a fun question to explore probably some other day. So what, what would you do if you didn't do policy? I know what I would do. You would hunt bears. Well, I would whittle. Oh. <laughs> and then hunt bears and grow stuff. Hunt, grow, build. I would probably teach golf lessons. Oh, my God. <laughs> I wish you hadn't told me that. Why? Would you golf with a golf club that I whittle? Maybe. Well, that would be more interesting. What about you, Rachel? We're not to get off track all of a sudden, but if you weren't a energy person, mm-hmm. an environment person, what would you do? I'd probably host my own awesome podcast or have an awesome YouTube channel. Would you let me be on it? Heck yeah. All right. You could teach people how to whittle on <laughs> my YouTube channel. Well, I'm not saying I know how to whittle. But I wouldn't mind giving the old college try teaching <laughs> folks. We could learn together. Anyway, one more time, Travis, just give us that that email address one more time. The Power Hour at Heritage.org. Thank you. Thank you much. Now, Travis and Rachel, I heard a vicious, vicious rumor about this here podcast. Oh no. Word on the street is that one of us is not going to be here next time or ever again I'll tell unless you right they're here now, as a Jack, guest. Wait. You can't get rid of me. So it's not you. Not me. So you're going to be here. You're not leaving. I'm going to die in this room, Jack. <laughs> well, don't say that and make it not today. And I prefer <laughs> that I not be here because I can't handle that sort of trauma. Rachel, are you? Well, let me first say, I know it's not me. God knows no one else would hire me. And I'm not sure if this, the Heritage Foundation will continue to hire me. But as of right now, I'm not leaving absent being asked to leave. So that leaves Rachel. Are you the one who's leaving? The rumors are true. I am leaving. You're leaving Heritage. I'm leaving Heritage. So this is your end the power hour. Yes. 
So this is your very last podcast. It is. And last day. And last day. Two and one. Where are you going? I'm going to stand together. What are you going to do there? I'm going to support their impact team on the foundation side. All right. I guess that's good. There's probably, hate... there's probably a lot of people that don't know what Stand Together is. What is Stand Together? So Stand Together is an organization, and specifically the foundation side that I'm going to be working for, is centered around uh, localized solutions to getting people out of poverty and advancing economic progress. So that's the mission and the team that I will be supporting. Will you ever come back and visit us again? Heck yeah. So this isn't your last time, necessarily? No. Okay. Well. I met my husband here, so I owe heritage a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's fair enough. I um, I hate to see you go. We can, uh, you know, we've worked together for a long time. Though people just know um, us working together on this podcast. We've been working together for five years in a bunch mm -hmm. of different jobs. It's been great. I hate to see you go, but I'm so happy for you, and Thank I know you. you're going to do great things. Now, since this is your last podcast, and Heritage Foundation continues to pay you, <laughs> I'm not going to let you off the hook as easy as what I normally do. Great. Because <laughs> the issues you've worked on in the past, yes. primarily here as an energy and environment person, mm -hmm. happens to be the one we're going to discuss here today. That's correct. So... Why don't you take it from here? I mean, I'm not going to make you take the whole thing from here. I, I, but from this point, why don't you take it from here? Rachel, your last podcast, over to you. All right. Well, as Jack mentioned, we're going to be talking about natural gas today, which has been the issue that I've worked on most. And we're super excited because we have um, a resident expert here. So... I'll introduce our guest today. Uh, Stuart Salters serves as the American Public Gas Association's Vice President of Government Relations, where he manages APGA's engagement in legislative and regulatory affairs, aiming to advance the goals of public natural gas utilities. He also serves as the staff uh, executive for the Direct Use Task Group, which guides the association's efforts in messaging and advocating for balanced energy solutions around the U.S., and prior to joining APGA, Stewart served as a senior policy advisor at the American Petroleum Institute, API. He spent some time working pipeline safety issues for API members, mostly operating liquids transmission lines, and then advocated for worker safety policies for refinery operators. And before that, he was a design and facility engineer for Chevron. So all that's to say, Stewart knows quite a bit about natural gas, so we're very excited to have you on. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank y'all for having me. Happy to be here. Great. Um, well, obviously, I just went through some of your background, but I think it'd be useful for listeners and for us here even if you could talk a little bit about APGA and what the organization does. Yeah. The floor is yours. No, happy to. So we are uh, the trade association, the National Trade Association for America's Public Gas Utilities. So there's about 700 public gas utilities across the U.S., uh, pretty much every state has a public gas utility. I think the distinction we like to make is that um, our utility members are publicly held. So they're actually entities of uh, government or entities of uh, the public. And so the contrast to that would be uh, investor-owned utilities or privately held utilities. So wherever you are in the country, um, if you're served by a natural gas utility, it's either a public utility or, or an investor-owned utility. You know, here in the D.C. area, um, the investor-owned utility that serves uh, our area is Washington Gas, so just as an example. 
but if you go uh, across to the eastern shore, you get into Easton, Maryland, and they actually have a public utility. So the city of Easton operates the energy provider for that uh, small community. That's also a distinction with a lot of our members is they're typically smaller. They typically serve more rural uh, areas of the country. Um, There's some exceptions to that. So the city of Philadelphia, um, they actually have a public utility. The city of San Antonio has a public utility. But I would say for the most part, our members are much smaller and located in more rural communities, which is which is important to us. I mean, I feel like that's a voice that um, I'm a I'm proud to advocate for, um, and one that may not be heard as loud as others. Great. Um, and then I think another thing that we'd like to do here is kind of just give a little primer for our listeners. So in in the sense of, you know. What is natural gas? What are these? What is this network that you're talking about, about public utilities? Who gets it? How do we get it? Uh, kind of just giving that foundational groundwork for, for our listeners. Yeah. So uh, you read my background, and I appreciate the experiences I've had. Uh, they are very diverse because, um, like you mentioned, um, I actually have a degree in civil engineering, worked as an engineer for about six years for Chevron. Um, in that role, I was actually... Um, in the upstream side of the business. So uh, worked. I, I have to interrupt. What do you mean by upstream? Yeah. So we, so at Chevron, I had the, or I worked on getting the energy out of the ground. And so that's the upstream or the, the where it all starts part of the natural gas value chain. And so, you know, I don't know if people have seen it on TV, but there's the big pipe that drills into the ground. And as it drills into the ground, it creates a hole. And where we were, uh, the way the geology was, was that the pressure was great, that it just came to the surface naturally. And at the surface, we had facilities that were able to capture the gas. Um, there was some you know, liquids that we had to figure out what to do with. But we captured the gas, put it in a pipeline, and sent it across the country. Um, so, that, so the midstream space, so you have upstream, then you have the midstream space, which Travis can talk all about. Um, that's the big pipelines that carry the energy across the country. And then eventually it gets to downstream or distribution, which is where I am now working with our members. They're the ones that take the molecules and provide it to their customers um, in the different communities and cities that they serve, that they work in and service. And so the variety of customers that our members, or they serve a variety of customers. There's the, the mother and father in their home using it for cooking, using it for uh, hot water, using it to heat their home. But there's also industries that use natural gas, whether as a feedstock for a product or as heat source for their manufacturing process. And so our members now, the American Public Gas Association members, are those utilities that provide that molecule to their customers. So it sounds like natural gas, you could say, is an incredibly important form of energy for millions of Americans, um, which is something, and and I think that there's a lot of common misconceptions about that. And you were talking a little bit about about drilling, and there used to be this, well, and we've had other people on who say this isn't necessarily the narrative anymore, but that we're going to run out of it, that there's not enough of it, that it's dirty, all these things. So can you address that that part of it, again, to, to kind of feed that foundational understanding of, of natural gas, kind of its expansive utility and just debunking kind of some of those generalized claims about it. Yeah. Uh, so working for a uh, producer, 
Uh, they went to great strides to ensure that they protected the environment, um, the processes were as clean as they could be, um, the workers were safe. Uh, so there is great efforts taken by America's oil and gas companies to ensure that the energy delivered is as clean and, and, and is, the workers are as safe as possible. And that's in every aspect, upstream, midstream, and, you know, the distribution sector. Um, you know, for, for us, one of the things we always talk about is the value of the direct use of natural gas. And so not throwing any energy sources under the bus, but uh, when you take that molecule and you, you know, produce it, put it in a pipeline and send it straight to the consumer, you're using 90% of the potential energy. Um, so you're not only, you know, yes, there are some, some losses in production as an industry, as a, you know, as a sector, we're working on that. We're working on ways we can capture uh, the molecules, make sure they stay in the pipe. But there's only 10% lost, whereas if you even take that molecule and you convert it to electricity, so you're even using natural gas for electricity, but you're losing about 60% of the energy. So you're taking, you know, 90% energy potential, right? 90% of the energy is used versus 30% of the energy is used. And so when you think about all the metrics that we're trying to measure as a country, you know, emissions and clean and efficiency and all that stuff, um, you know, biased opinion, but I do think natural gas checks all those boxes. Well, it's not totally unbiased, though, no. because... We do understand that since the shale revolution and mm -hmm. and the introduction of natural gas and displacement of of coal, that we have gotten cleaner, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I don't I don't think that that's necessarily a biased opinion. <laughs> um, I think it's factual. Yeah, <laughs> not not that there's anything wrong with coal. No, by the right, way. right, 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 right. We're not saying that. As as you mentioned earlier, we are not. <laughs> We're balanced. You know, yes. We're balanced. Yes. Energy Can station. I contribute go something? Go for it. Go for it. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about here is the importance of markets, and that um, that individual families, business individuals, families, and businesses are far better able to um, prioritize what preferences they have than what government bureaucrats ever could. So I would just say you can be as biased as you want to be, <laughs> biased till the cows come home. If we had the right sort of energy policy, you could express your bias in the marketplace. And so could everyone else. And it probably would be the case that natural gas would do just fine because it has so many positive attributes that people want in making decisions. Um, so anyway, I think that's – people can say – can acknowledge a bias or can even critique others for having a bias. That bias only matters, I would argue, to the extent that it feeds into a policy that leads to mandates and and controlling what the market looks like. That's when bias really matters because we all have biases. And in a free market, uh, let's all compete. All those biases can, yeah. can compete. No, and, and a couple of things I'll share on that. Just, um, you know, anecdotally, it's unfortunate that some of the policies we're seeing across the country are limiting consumer choice. So in a couple ways, um, you know, we could talk more about it, but pipeline capacity is being constrained because policies are preventing um, pipelines from being built. And so we've got members in certain parts of the country, the Northeast as an example, they have waiting lists of people that want natural gas and they can't get it because they won't let them 
build a pipeline. Unfortunately, there's a state in between uh, where there's a lot of energy and where these people would like natural gas that's not allowing pipeline construction. And so we're seeing some policies affect bias, affect choice in that way. We're seeing the pipeline policy affect that choice. We're also seeing it in, um, again, like I mentioned, that direct use component, um, policies that are basically mandating consumers have only one option, um, in particular with appliances. And so we would argue that natural gas appliances are just as clean, just as efficient as their electric counterparts. Um, again, a lot of that is because they have that, op they have that ability to take that molecule and use it directly. Whereas, like I said, even if you're converting natural gas to electricity, you're still less efficient because you're using, you're losing all the energy as you're converting it from molecule to electron, putting it on a power line, losing it. And so you can take a natural gas appliance and it can be just as efficient on that source or on the yeah, source energy basis. Um, but certain policymakers around the country don't agree and are kind of forcing consumers to go one way to only buy electric appliances. Yeah, that's something that we're working on or have been working on a lot here at Heritage, especially the consumer choice angle. Just looking into that more, we we submitted comments on the DOE um, gas stove mm -hmm. ban, what is effectively a ban. Um, that's Department of Energy. Sorry, yes, Department of Energy. Federal government <laughs> yes. trying to ban your stoves? Yes. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. It's sad. It's a sad reality. But there's, I mean, that's at the federal level, but we also see it going on at the state level. Um, and I know recently New York just passed legislation that's, I have the, it's kind of, it's pretty crazy. I have the numbers here. <laughs> it's mainly residential buildings under seven stories have to use electric for heating and cooking by 2026 and for taller buildings by 2029. And it also eliminates the use of propane and heating oil. So total mandate to electric. And I mean, I imagine that natural gas is relatively important to the state of New York and New York City specifically, right? I mean. Yeah. And I think it's, I think New York is the, it's kind of a, I don't live in New York, uh, but I would be frustrated if I did because you you see where such a, such a part of the state is dictating policy for the whole state. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I think it gets cold in New York City. I'm from Mississippi, so everything, you know, north of a certain point is cold to me. But I think about the people in the western part of the state, Buffalo, um, closer to the, the Great Lakes, like it gets real cold there. And when you think about the the way your appliance works, natural gas just provides better heat. Mm -hmm. It's um, and it uses it more efficiently. It, you know, you're taking an electric molecule. I mean, there's research out there. There's work being done, but at this point, I'm. I, it's hard for me to be proven that an electric heat pump, the current technology for electric heat, is capable of providing a comfortable temperature and what you see in Buffalo, New York. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but I, And something that we've posed to previous guests, too, is this Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decision that happened in, in California, which, uh, so also to give some context, there's states that are doing this in the form of building code regulations, and then the New York ban is just a flat mm -hmm. ban on, on natural gas utility. Mm -hmm. um, so this Ninth Circuit Court decision... We're kind of 
posing, is this going to potentially carry effects into other states and maybe contribute to rolling back something like this? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah. So again, I'll caveat that civil engineer trying to talk sure. uh, legal, um, but I'll I'll just say the conversations we've had is that it will have impacts. I mm-hmm. think if you read the decision and those three judges in that circuit left no stone unturned in, in terms of what they said was preempted by the Energy Policy and Conservation Act. And so you kind of have this, again, probably shouldn't go here as a civil engineer, but I'll, the way I understand it is if you're an appliance manufacturer, you want to make one gas range, just as an example. And so you you can't make 50 gas ranges because 50 states have different policies. And so that's where preemption at the federal level a lot, kind of sets the standard for the country. And so, you know, KitchenAid, because that's what we have, uh, they make one gas range for 50 states. So what California did by proposing a ban was, you know, they kind of made, it's the same with vehicles, right? You guys, I'm sure, have talked about vehicles. And so it's kind of that whole cafe-type analogy. And so, yeah, so the Ninth Circuit said, it makes sense for there to be one federal standard. You know, California, the city in California, Berkeley, can't ban gas, kind of essentially making it a different standard as opposed to every other city in the country. And that, so now what we're seeing in New York is they're doing the same thing. It's a different circuit. So the Ninth Circuit is Washington, Oregon, and California, maybe a few other states. Um, but those three, and so basically all those three states Again, in our opinion, the judges kind of made it where any city that continues down this path is going against the Constitution. Um, That's a different circuit than where New York is, and so you would assume New York would, that circuit, if somebody brings suit, they would go through the same process of raising it up, you know, appeals and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I do, I mean, she's the governor. She can do what she wants. The legislator can do what they want, but... I just do find it kind of ironic that literally like three days after the that ruling came down in the Ninth Circuit, she passed her budget or the, this bill passed. And so we'll see. <laughs> I did I did see that Washington State has halted mm-hmm. or, or, or delayed the implementation of their building code standard. And the thought is that it's because of this mm-hmm. decision. Um, but you mentioned a little bit ago the Environmental Policy and Conservation Act. And I know that... Jack has some strong opinions about EFCA. Um, so, uh, Jack, you want <laughs> go to go on your rant? No, I got nothing to say on it. No. <laughs> uh, I do. I think I hate EFCA. I hate everything about it. It was passed at a time where um, we allegedly had energy scarcity, which we didn't. It was government created government uh, energy scarcity. It created um, all of the, it created, it, provided the statutory framework that all of this garbage that we're dealing with today emanates from. And one of the frustrating things I, one of the reasons I become frustrated by this conversation, I, I agree with everything you, 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 I generally agree with everything. No, I generally agree with what you said. That would be the right way of saying it. But you said something that is frustrating to me that is not um, a fault of yours, but of, uh, I'm not hating the player. I'm hating the game and what I'm about to say. <laughs> okay. Just um, the messenger. <laughs> right. Now, there should be a national standard that everyone doesn't want to make 50 different stoves. I think that's a, I think that, that is a 
bogus policy framework. Mm. I think it's a framework that arises out of EPCA because EPCA is what puts us in the mindset of needing a federal standard. Mm. We don't need federal standards for stoves. And I, though I understand where you're coming from, I reject the notion that we can't have multiple stoves for multiple markets because we see manufacturers of all sorts of things mm-hmm. provide different um, different types of consumer products for different markets. Mm-hmm. But it should be consumer-driven and not as a result of mandates and and um, building codes and all that junk. So I get what you're saying. Like, I'm not, you know, given the game that you're being forced to play, I understand where you're coming from. But I also think that a really important policy conversation to have, maybe not at the um, association level, because you you got to deal with what you got to deal mm-hmm. with, but from the think tank level, and I think from the higher, from the um, presidential politics level and the national politics level, we need to go after UTCA because, you know, we, we saw Trump go after the light bulbs. We see people going after the, you know, before that, the big thing was the toilets that need to flush all the time. And, and all, you know, every couple, pretty much every time a conservative Republican runs for higher, for president, there's one of these things that sort of captures the national attention. And you can see it being uh, stoves this time around, perhaps being the thing. And we end up going after the, Th- that kernel of an issue rather than the entire corn stalk needs to be ripped from the out at the roots. So anyway, um, that's sort of, that's sort of my rant on it. I think that just everything that's in that, I know a lot of folks like the, um, that th- there are some elements of it people like, but to me, I, I'm nor- normally not one to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but in this case, I say get rid of the whole daggone thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think the ironic, again, I've used that word a lot, but it is ironic to me that if gas ranges are the kernel that they go after and it becomes a culture war or whatever, um, like, do you realize how much emissions your gas range has? Like, it's, it's pit, pit, you know, it's nothing. I mean, if you really wanted to address the problem that, we, Alleged. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, if you want to address emissions, then why are we going after... And if we want to address emissions despite our Airbnb's well. getting cleaner and cleaner every year since the early 90s, despite us having more trees than we've had since Europeans first came to this continent, despite the standard of living that we all enjoy, despite having more food than what we know what to do with, that the biggest problem we have in this country is not one of abundance, not one of environmental cleanliness, not one of any of those things, but it's one of a... Si- now I'm going to start sounding... <laughs> Maybe I should save this for the dark web version. <laughs> but it's a system that takes, that distributes wealth from the poor to the rich through things like EV mandates. And God knows that things like like um, natural gas mandates, that certainly isn't benefiting poor folks. It's it's taking the the it's making ga- it's making stoves more expensive. If there are gas stoves left, they will be more expensive than they otherwise would be. And it's not the poor folks who are who get to keep that extra money that are paid for stoves. It's politicians. It's it's uh, through taxation, and it's the to the the businesses that lobbied 
the members of Congress and the environmental and, and, and the inventor, environmental lobbyists who get that money. They get richer and everyone else gets poorer. That's the problem we have. Oh, my God. And then we, <laughs> we're talking about freaking emissions in the United States today. <laughs> Give me a break. Give me a break. Well, well you remember, though, that all of these new electric vehicles, they're not going to create more emissions. It's Nothing's going to have to pump up all that electricity into the grid, right, Travis? Yeah, that's right. I was actually going to jump in at some point. I didn't want to interrupt Jack's dark web rant. But please, do, do you guys play up the resilience angle? Because I think there's something weird about wanting to electrify everything at the same time that you're forcing so much intermittent generation on the grid. And it's basically like, just trust us. Put all your eggs in this one basket. We swear it's going to work out great. At the same time, they're doing everything humanly possible to ruin the grid. Is that an angle that you guys play up? Like, hey, this gas, like the pipeline itself is about as safe as you can move a thing at all, period. And it's resilient in the sense that you have multiple different fuel sources. So if you want to run things on you know, your power line, that's fine. But if you, as soon as you take away the other options, the gas options, like I have a, a propane tank at my house, if, if I lose that, then it's like, well, then all the eggs, the heating, the cooking, all that stuff, you're putting everything in the same basket. And it seems like that's a resilience problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. So if you've ever seen any natural gas infrastructure, you know, kudos to you because most people haven't. It's all buried. It's all underground. It's protected from the weather. And so the statistic we have is that um, typically if you have electricity, you'll lose your electricity on average about one time a year. If you have natural gas infrastructure, usually about one in 800 people use, lose their natural gas service in a year. So Usually every electricity customer will use their, lose their electricity. Only about 1 in 800 natural gas customers loses their natural gas service. Uh, another anecdote is during Winter Storm Uri a few years back, um, sure, there were natural gas constraints because of some of the production that came offline. But as far as we know, um, all the natural gas customers kept their service during that period of time. They may have lost electricity that was powered by natural gas. But if you had natural gas pipe to your home, you could still have that service. And so there is certainly a resiliency aspect to it. I mean, you could look, again, another anecdote, don't have data, but I mean, it's pretty evident that there's a lot of natural gas generators being bought right now. I mean, they're in a lot of states where some of these policies are being pushed by some of the more progressive um, policymakers. And so it's just kind of ironic that that's the... The situation we have. Yeah, I didn't even think of that because there are a lot of those whole house generators that are all natural gas. Yep. Um, I guess you can get run them off propane as well, but propane, you know, once your tank runs out, you're kind of done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, again, you know, our, our members go to great lengths to buy capacity to ensure they have the energy that their customers are contracted for. Going back to the energy mandates thing, not for me to rant, but for me to ask an actual question. Um, I mean, you've been watching this a long time. It feels like everything's ramping up on that side of things. Could you walk us through sort of the evolution? Like, are we on a slippery slope like 20 years ago or something when, you know, we started hearing about, you know, some mandates here? We're just trying to help. Yeah, we're big brother. We're just, you know, we're looking out for you. Don't Wait, worry. I, I kind of want to add an element here. I'm not sure if this is where you're going with this, but I, I do want to dig into this. Do you remember back when uh, Sierra Club was te teaming up with, I think it was Chesapeake Energy, where it was basically 
the the gas lobby was behind this Beyond Coal campaign. So I was like, let's take out the slightly dirtier fuel first, and then we'll sort out the details later. I'm kind of worried about that, and I think that's kind of what Jack's getting at. It seems like a, a whole lot of the fire now is is trained on gas itself instead of saying, well, it's relatively cleaner. It's cleaner than coal, so we like it. Now it's we've got all these Beyond Gas campaigns too. Well, to be clear, that is a good question and one that I think is even way more interesting because it has political intrigue. And so, so I agree with that. That's and not, we can say bad things about Sierra Club, I, which I love to do. That I don't want to take credit for having thought that, though. I was legit thinking about the evolution of this, but it's sort of it's on the same. Well, because I, two I, sides I, of the same I, I do want to mix two things, too, if we can sort of transition from the all the mandates on the direct use on the sort of the end user, then a lot of these campaigns, the focus is at the federal level, whether it's FERC or whoever else, trying to stop the the pipeline build out itself. So they have a lot of really good, really well paid lawyers arguing this stuff out, saying, "Oh, well, you didn't you didn't do this analysis closely enough," and then the judge comes in and agrees and says, "Yeah, you have to go back to the drawing board," and then it's just delay, and so it's just a ridiculous amount of effort going into this. Sort of anti-gas, it's it's a it's a national thing. So there's the there's the end use stuff, which is usually at a state or county or city level, but the federal stuff is just as bad. Want to get your thoughts on sort of the the campaign against gas as as you see it? Yeah, I'll try to answer both of them here. Uh, but I think so. We do see a ramp up in attacks on natural gas, and to your point, Travis, it may be because coal is you know, they've sufficient, they felt like they sufficiently have pushed it to the side and now they got a new target. Um, although even Rachel was saying bad things about although the, <laughs> the rumors of its death have been greatly exaggerated, I think. But anyways, I mean, again, we're all of the above balanced energy mm-hmm. solutions. We're, we're not going to pick winners and losers. We won't, we want all eggs in the basket. Um, but for, from where we sit, we do see the attacks being elevated and it's at the state level, it's at the city level, it's at the federal level. Um, as to why those attacks are getting more and more, I, I don't know. Um, again, maybe the they they've you know they've bought, drunk their own Kool Aid and they feel like they sufficiently have poo pooed coal, but and now they need a new target. Um, I think the the reality though is that we've had some wins. Um, you look at I think 2020 was the first, but there was um, a few states in 2020 that passed what I call consumer choice legislation. And so they these states, uh, Arizona, Tennessee, um, I think were the two first states, they saw this move at the federal level and in even the local level to push consumers away from choice. And so the state legislator, the state governor said, this is crazy. We're going to make sure that our laws allow consumers to have the choice they want. And so now you see 23 states, almost half of the states in our country, have passed consumer choice legislation. I was on the phone today with one of our members from Georgia. He was at the bill signing, and Governor Kemp was joking with him. He was like, never thought I'd have to sign a bill like this, you know, Georgia being one of those states that passed this consumer choice legislation. Like, you know, what governor thought he would have to put in law that no locality under his, you know, in his state could ban an energy choice. 
um, than the Ninth Circuit decision. I mean, that's a that's a victory. I mean, it'll be challenged. You know, your friends at the Sierra Club are probably sharpening their pencils right now, trying to figure out how to go after it. Um, but at the same time, that is precedent that we have on the books to push back against some of this stuff. And so, you know, thank, I, again, I appreciate what our members are doing. I appreciate what our industry is doing in that, you know, we see these attacks and we're trying to push back and, and tell the good story about natural gas and, and what our members are doing. One of my concerns with the victories, not to be negative, I, I, I hear and understand and don't disagree with your optimism or your, your presentation of having had victories. But God, I'm concerned. You see with like the, the CO2 stuff where they, this, the CO2 alarmists go, 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 go. They get pushed back. Then they come back again. We see it with the we saw it with the clean power plan. We see it with everything. And here's where my bias will come in. I feel like conservatives actually stick to the facts. Like we are bound by reality. When when we are engaged in this debate, we talk about what things cost, what the benefits are. We you know we try to be honest about those things. And I think we genuinely are, generally speaking. The left isn't. I mean, they, they just straight up detach their narrative from any reality. And they are so clearly focused on the agenda and on the outcome that they don't let, like, reality or court decisions or anything get in their way. And so, like, I hear you that there have been some victories, but my fear is that— Perhaps if the left keeps winning in different areas, politically, gets political victories, they'll keep pushing this stuff. And then what happens is you get these, if not nationally, these pockets of um, communities or of states where the bans, the mandates, whatever it is, whether it's in energy space or, or healthcare is a great example, where that then becomes the status quo then it's virtually impossible to break outside of that. Even if like all facts, all scientific work, all economics pointed in one direction, even if it, even if the thing is not popular, it's, it has, it, it at some point becomes part of the baseline of American society. And I see some of these things happening, or I fear that some, some of these things are happening in energy environment space. And I fear that, that, that it will expand because we see, the 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 continuing ratcheting by the left. I don't know. Make me feel better about that. Well, I, I mean, I think the unfortunate thing uh, is, like you said, it may not be a national thing. Um, again, as you, if if some of the policies are pursued and approved, it could be a national thing. But um, what what I fear is that certain localities will go so far, like. You know, we'll take our favorite state, California, as an example. I mean, they are on the brink, and and it and it's unfortunate thinking about your next opportunity, Rachel. Like, the lower income, the moderate income folks are gonna suffer because the policies they're putting in place are gonna raise energy prices, and then what level of suffering is gonna be enough to eventually convince policy or get the policymakers voted out of office because at some level there's going to be an amount of suffering where people just, you know, hopefully they 
you know, hopefully it's through elections, but they make a change because they've put up with enough. Um, and then, of course, the the unfortunate thing is if it is that is that have they gone too far? Right. Have you gone so far as a policymaker with your policies? You can't go back. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some level, you know, not to make you feel good, Jack, but I just do feel like there's going to be repercussions of these policy choices and that's going to make voters make decisions that hopefully will cause some transition. Right. If I may, I'd like to make Jack feel worse. <laughs> I feel like that's part of my job here at the foundation. Just got to get worse before it just, gets better. You know, Jack's like, I'm having a bad day. I'm like, well, you just you wait. I'm going to give you some more bad news. I think it's so the point about the whole home generator with the gas line to it. I love that idea. Uh, as somebody who may or may not be able to afford that, I kind of like the idea. There are a lot of people who that's just not that's not in their budget. Those are the people that are going to get hit the hardest. That's the kind of thing that, you know, if you if you point that out to the left, they and they're doing this in California. The whole idea is like, well, we know that our policies are regressive in the sense that they'll raise your electricity prices and things like that. So therefore, new law, new rule, we're going to charge you a high fixed rate, but it's going to be based on your income. So they're basically going right to the heart of it, and th- that's where it, it's not fixing the problem. It's just changing how the how the costs come down. It's, it's uh, so I don't think it is actually. I'm not going to try to cheer Jack up on this. I think it's bad. <laughs> you brought up something, Travis, that I was thinking about too. Is is that transparency aspect of it all? Because the the utility cost is one thing, but I mean they're not advertising their the replacement costs for for these utilities either. If you're switching over to electric, that's thousands and thousands of dollars that consumers are expected to just pay out of pocket to comply with these regulations, which is just yet another layer of all of these these associated costs with these sorts of policies. So I think that's one side of the existential threat coin, which the other side is that we have to do everything at all costs all the time. So on the one hand, you don't care about what it's going to cost consumers. On the other hand, this whole Slowing down to be fact-based and legally sound and durable and all that stuff, I don't have time for that. It's an existential threat. Mm-hmm. And I think that explains the, you know, all, all the people going after the gas industry now. It's like, well, we thought we had a CO2 budget that was, you know, the, the original Paris Agreement was, you know, you reduce a certain amount by a certain year. Now it's like, the only thing people are talking about is zero. Mm-hmm. Now, Stuart, you can, you can uh, disavow what I'm about to say. I'm just speaking for myself. <laughs> Not, not for anyone who represents a bunch of Is that door locked? He's going to try to but run out. Not, not only is, an, is it an existential threat, but it's an exist, existential threat from an odorless, uh, invisible gas that humans and plants depend on. Uh, and it causes something that's been happening uh, naturally since the beginning of time. And so uh, just trust us, big government, to fix that for you. And to do that, we'll control everything you do. And I've said Just it before, not a traditional pollutant because I go out of my way to inject my drinking water with CO2. Or <laughs> not a pollutant at all. I, if you recall, a couple of podcasts ago, I asked Rachel to look up a word, authoritarian. Now, um, I will. Uh, I think this conversation, we should bring it up again. Uh, I, I did. And just to remind everyone what that definition of authoritarian is. Favoring or enforcing strict obedience to authority, especially that of government, at the expense of personal freedom. So I didn't ask us at the end of that podcast whether or not we were dealing with that sort of thing, but I'm going to at the end of this one. 
And though I'm not going to uh, spend time looking up another word, we should look up pollutant too. And I would bet anything, CO2 does not fit the criteria. I'll look that up next. But I got to say, on that episode with Nick, I was the only one that closed the loop because I said right up front that I'm sure all of all of this garbage is authoritarian. You you guys were the ones that like. I'm not sure. We'll circle back at the end of the episode. It was my fault. I was. I'm the host, and I didn't do it. So thank you for making me feel worse. Straight up about the environment, but my own shortcomings as a professional thousand percent authoritarian that there's your answer we don't have to circle back you think authoritarian sounds pretty authoritarian it's authoritarian by <laughs> definition what these jokers are trying to do to us mm-hmm. but uh all right we're tapping Stuart back in for to the conversation <laughs> um Stuart, do you look at international stuff you know one of the interesting things with natural gas natural gas and energy of course there's always been a important critical international aspect to it. But since Russia invaded Ukraine, that has really elevated and I thought think brought more focus to the issue. Is that an issue that you look at, that you all look at? Because certainly that has to have some impact on, on certainly on natural gas policy broadly. Yeah. Most all of our members are domestic. So all of our members are US comp or US entities um, in like I said, one of the thirty eight states where we have public utility members. The, the big uh, focus for us from an international standpoint is on the international market's impact on the domestic gas price. And we, we track what's happening with LNG deliveries as an example, just because how does that impact the price of natural gas domestically? You know, for the most part, I think um, we saw some significant upticks in natural gas prices whenever Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, but I, our members, and this is, you know, another area where I need some education on my own, but our our members do a really good job at um, hedging natural gas prices, you know, m- setting long-term contracts. And so they understand the impact on their customers of fluctuations in commodity cost. And so they try to smooth out that fluctuation, those fluctuations, so that their customers don't see, you know, one month, um, significantly more in terms of the price of natural gas, even though the usage didn't change, than another month. And so um, we are very, we do monitor the international actions. An easy way to solve that would be more infrastructure. Um, You know, we're all for natural LNG exports because we understand the value of natural gas. We do that here domestically. Why can't our Friends and allies overseas benefit like we. I wanted to here. ask you that, but I was a little bit afraid to. I didn't want to to get into a big debate with you. So I'm um, I'm glad that you said that. Yeah, the problem, in our opinion, is not LNG exports. The problem is pipeline capacity. Yeah, it's artificial constraints yep. on production yep. and distribution. Absolutely. It's a huge problem, and it exacerbated the problem that Putin caused. Right. You know, Biden again. Not trying to put you in a political conversation. These are my words, obviously. But when Biden goes around talking about the Putin gas hike, um, yes, it's true that when Putin invaded Ukraine, gas did uh, price energy prices, energy commodity prices did spike. They also came down pretty quickly to where they were when Biden took office, which reflected, I would argue, the Biden price spike. Mm-hmm. And the Biden Biden price spike is purely, I would argue again, a function of both his um, policies that restrict supply and anticipated policies to restrict supply. And 
it's just a shame. It is just a shame because um, if he would lift those restrictions, truly allow a free energy market to thrive, it would totally undermine any power Putin gains from controlling energy. It would get our friends and allies the energy they need. And oh, and by the way, it would benefit Americans greatly because it would incentivize much greater production across the board, and it would bring our prices down too. And a bunch of Americans would get rich, and they would spend that money here in the United States on other stuff so that we would have money to buy their stupid expensive stoves that they make us buy. <laughs> but um, they're not doing that. So, um, yeah, that the, the international aspect, I think, is a— um, is an element of energy policy that is too often not understood. Um, I often make a joke that most Americans become communist when it comes to energy uh, in this way. They say, we should be keeping our oil here. And ain't none of them, as far as I can tell, who have said that own oil wells that they can call their own. Um, but I get the sentiment, and I understand where they're coming from. But it should be the case that I wish it were the case that people understood the benefit that Americans get from internationalized and free energy markets when combined with energy policies that allow adequate supply to be produced to meet that that demand and how it makes us all more prosperous. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's not exactly a similar analogy, but. We look at two of the bigger infrastructure projects on the East Coast, um, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Atlantic Coast Pipeline has since been kicked to the curb. Uh, Mountain Valley Pipeline hanging on by a little bit of a lifeline. Those projects were not built to service APGA customers. But you better believe APGA members are going to benefit. Sorry, I said customers. Members. APGA members are going to benefit from those those two projects, the one uh, Mountain Valley Pipeline, hopefully being constructed, because they have uh, there's utilities along the right of way of that pipeline, and the operator of that pipeline is not building the pipeline just for one end use. I mean, he's going to have taps, or they're going to have taps off of that pipeline. They're going to service different customers, different end uses, and so that's where we benefit. So LNG exports, that is a huge demand center. And that is what's going to drive production. But that pipeline has got to go from Pennsylvania to a coast or West Texas to a coast. And you better believe there's utilities along that right-of-way that are going to benefit. And so um, that's where our members are trying to help policymakers understand, help help folks understand. We all benefit when there's more capacity, when there's more mm-hmm. infrastructure constructed. So we, we've covered a lot of issues. Um, we're about an hour in. We'll try to keep it about an hour. Is there anything that we missed or anything that, that you th- that you want to make sure our audience of of folks uh, of Jack's Power Pack? <laughs> Just kidding, everyone. I know. Um, need, need to know? I think we covered a lot of ground. Uh, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate all your time. I do want to add one thing. Is it the definition of in, pollutant? Well, I can add that, too. I, I've been doing a lot of phone research over here. I, I did want to pull up some data that's going to make Jack's day even worse. This is from a uh, it's from a March 2nd, 2023 EIA blog post, and they do a really good job with their data, but they th- this is bad news. The least U.S. interstate natural gas pipeline capacity on record, 
was added in the year 2022. Least on record. And the, this chart goes back to 95. So it's been at least that long. But holy cow, that's not a good sign, especially as we're trying to, you know, use less coal and some other things like that. They, we obviously need this pipeline capacity. Do you see this as a direct result of the FERC pipeline policy statements that were floated early in, I'm going to say, was that early 22, February of 2022? And they were immediately labeled draft. FERC did a just kidding because they were hauled up to the Senate and yelled at for a couple hours. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you see that as, as the direct cause of this or what's, what's going on? Because we, we need capacity and this, we can't have a lowest on record year again in 23. Yeah. I, I think uh, what, I guess at that time, Chairman Glick did with the policy statements was definitely a causal factor. I think some of the rhetoric from the administration suppressed the drive for supply. And so there was a lot of just compounding factors, which, um, you know, if you're an upstream producer, are you going to go invest in dr- in drilling and buying leases? If you've got a Bureau of Land Management, you've got an EPA, you've got, you know, all these uh, federal agencies, you know, ready, pencil sharpened to write regulations to make it harder for you to do what you can do cleanly and safely. Um, and then you've got, you know, in the midstream side of it, the regulators on the midstream space, you know, kind of getting ready to put up barriers to prevent it, to prevent construction of pipelines, you know, and then on our space, in in the distribution space, you've got policymakers putting out mandates, forcing people to buy electric appliances. And so um, I think the policy statements definitely had an impact, but there was a lot of things that have suppressed the, the desire to drill and produce our country's resources. Okay. And if if I could bring this full circle, because I feel like Rachel was about to ask me about the definition of I wasn't. I was just going to call you out for being a Debbie Downer. <laughs> oh, I was well, going to fix that. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, right, this, give us your this, definition. This isn't good news either. This, this is I I would pull this up, and I was like, this is to me. This sounds like a very religious type of approach. So pollute verb. This is from Merriam-Webster. First definition: to make ceremonially or morally impure. That's, so I that's was definition one A. That is CO two pollu- That is C- the a good definition of CO two reduction mandate ideology. One one B is to debase, and then okay, there's two A and B. Two A, to make physically impure or unclean. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Two B, to contaminate an environment, especially with man-made waste. This is religion. This is crazy. It's, it makes all the sense in the world from a CO2 alarmist who hates humans. There is uh, one waste stream, arguably, is what we exhale, CO2. You're the waste, Jack. How do you feel now? Are you feeling any better about yourself? No. No. I, 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 hurts I'm, I've, been, I've been trying to cheer you up this whole time. I, I'm sorry. Stuart, can you leave us on a happy note? Give us some optimism about natural gas and energy in America. So uh, I said it earlier, we've seen some states respond uh, to the importance of consumer choice. Um, For our members, they're still focused on providing energy safely and efficiently to their customers. In our 
and I don't want to use the word bias or opinion. I don't want to get on that rant again, <laughs> but, but we believe that we're going to be around for a long time. We've invested significantly in our people in the pipelines and our assets. Um, and we believe those are ready to deliver energy for many, many years to come. Very good. I do have a positive thing. Yeah. I think this is a phase that we're in. I do too. The whole Biden team, the whole like on the campaign trail to pull somebody aside and say, I'm not going to play along with fossil fuels like that. I feel like people are growing up. That's that's an immature, stupid thing to say. I agree so I, with I, that. I think we're about to grow up out of this phase. I agree. Um, so we'll, we'll close up there. Rachel, let me just say, you did a great job. Oh, thanks. I'm glad you're leaving because I would not be able to do this anymore. <laughs> Absolutely outstanding. Would well, you guys agree? You. Absolutely. Yes. See, thanks. I'm not alone. Outstanding. Way to, way to go, out, go out. Yeah. Really <laughs> nice job. I'm kind of jealous because I like work on this all the time and I don't do nearly that good. So very good. Um, as always, everyone, thank you for taking some time to listen to the Power Hour. We really do appreciate it. Subscribe, please. And please tell your friends and family to, to check us out. We certainly want to get our, get our word out to as many folks as we can. As I like to say, even if you don't like us, tell your enemies. We'll take anyone. And so, yeah, just thank you very much for everyone listening and, 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 and for, for subscribing. Oh, yeah, I wanted to mention you can find us on – Anna, I want you to say this. Yeah, my last, the last time saying it. Um, so you can find The Power Hour anywhere you get your podcast. Just search The Power Hour Heritage, and you'll have access to our full episode library. And what I wanted to mention in addition to that that we haven't done in the past is we are on the Herd from Heritage Stream or something? Yes, is that what Heard, it's at, Heritage Heard at Heritage Podcast, podcast Stream. Yeah. So you can access it through there as well. Yeah. So lots of ways to get us. Travis, Rachel Stort, any final words? Do we get to have Rachel back sometimes? We mentioned that earlier, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I'll come back. She okay. said she would come back. I, I didn't commit to bringing her back. I Ooh. said um, now that I won't be listening to my own voice, I can also be an avid listener of the Power Hour. <laughs> I'll be a part of Jack's power pack. Oh, great. Cool. Do I have any final? No one ever asks me if I have any final words. Do you have any final words? I do. What what are those? They're to you to thank you for everything you've done. But we'll keep it just to the power hour. Thank you for doing this with us for all these episodes. You added so much. And we will not be the same without you. It's sort of an end of an era. Yeah. And uh, you did a great job. None better than today. You always do a great job. So I just wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart for this and everything that you've done for Heritage, for this center, and for me over the years. Thank you. Thanks, Jack. Happy to. There we hey, go, Jack, folks. You're losing a co-host, but you're gaining a Power Pack member. <laughs> and on that note, thank you all. Bye.